and we're talking about the Olympics this morning and we often hear about the huge cost of cities hosting the Olympics and presumably cities must want to host them because they think it will bring real economic benefits in the short and long term. Now Andrew Zimbalist is an economist at Smith College Massachusetts and he's author of Circus Maximus The Economic Gamble Behind Hosting the Olympic Games and the World Cup. I spoke to him yesterday and I asked him to describe the economics of a city hosting the Games. The, the fundamental problem is that the International Olympic Committee, or the IOC, is a monopoly. It's a global monopoly, and because it's global, it doesn't have any national regulatory bodies telling it what it can do and it can't do. So it has a lot of market power, and it takes advantage of that by every four years for the Summer Olympics and every four years for the Winter Olympics, hosting an auction amongst the cities of the world, asking them to bid against each other to convince the IOC that, that they, as a city, are, are the most worthy hosts of the honor of hosting the Olympic Games. And the way the cities historically have done that is by proposing more elaborate venues uh, and more connections amongst the venues and the, and the clusters of, of uh, Olympic activity. Um, and uh, so what happens over time is that the price goes higher and higher. So we're at a point right now where Rio this year is spending somewhere on the order of $20 billion to host the games, and they'll receive something on the order of $3 billion in revenue. There's obviously a deficit there, around $17 billion. That's not a good financial investment. Uh, Now, the IOC will claim that there are long-term benefits because there's exposure on, on international television, and that exposure will make people want to travel to your country, increasing tourism, and businesses will want to do business with your city. Uh, trade and foreign investment will increase. They also claim that there'll be an increase in physical fitness of, of the population as they become more enamored with uh, physical uh, well-being. Now, the the economic evidence, the data, doesn't suggest that any of these long-term benefits are forthcoming. So the country, at the end of the day, is left with this this deficit. I might add that although $20 billion is the cost in terms of the amount of checks that they write, the amount that they actually pay out in cash, there are other expenses as well that don't get calculated in that $20 billion. For instance, the Brazilian government has made land grants to private developers who and construction companies that are building some of the Olympic venues. They've also provided low-interest, below-market loans to these companies, and they provide tax abatements to the companies. Uh, There are also requirements that the IOC has about not taxing certain kinds of Olympic activities, so fiscal revenues tend to go down when you host the Olympics. And then there's the use of scarce urban real estate uh, when when you're taking land that could have better uses and you're, you're putting a velodrome there or some other athletic facility that will have very little use going forward, uh, you're, not in, you're not using your land in, in the best possible way. Mm-hmm. And along with that comes environmental degradation. In Rio, they, they built a golf course, which is not needed in Rio. Golf is not a popular sport there, and they have two golf courses already that are not very you um, not used very often uh, by the local population. They built a golf course in in, in an environmental reserve uh, where there are wetlands that are supposed to be protected. Uh, there were initial challenges to the use of that golf course, but uh, the, the government 
they said basically we're not going to pay attention to the, the, the court decisions in this case and we're going to go ahead and build the golf course. Now they have a golf course that in order to maintain will require enormous amounts of water for irrigation and Brazil and, and Rio in particular has, has a water scarcity. So there are all sorts of problems mm-hmm. like that, that that go along with the Olympics. And then there's the social problem, which is that they had to evict over 77,000 favelados or people who live in, in the favelas or shanty towns in order to make room for the Olympic constructions. So given all that, who is driving the bids um, from the cities? Why would any city actually want this? Well, first of all, fewer and fewer cities do want it. We, we, we know, for instance, that for the 2022 Winter Olympics that was uh, awarded to Beijing in 2015, that in the year and a half before the Games were awarded to Beijing, there were five different European cities that had been involved in the bid that dropped out because there were either popular referendums or local city councils decided that it was not economically worthwhile. In the case of the 2024 Summer Olympic bidding, uh, South Africa dropped out, Toronto dropped out, Boston dropped out, Hamburg dropped out, and May, excuse me, and Rome might drop out because the new mayor of Rome is not, not interested in hosting the Olympics. She thinks it's a bad economic investment. But in those cases where there are bids and the bids go forward, more often than not, it's because a group of local executives, probably uh, most likely from the construction sector, are pushing the bid. Construction companies tend to be the largest employer in, in a local urban economy, and they have an enormous amount of political weight and political connections that they can throw around. And they go to the mayor, they go to the city council and say, we, we want this to be done. And usually they line up some investment bankers who are going to float the loans to finance the construction, uh, some lawyers who work for them, maybe some insurance companies. They'll all come together and, and they'll lobby for it to happen. And, and that more often than not is is the process that uh, I'm validates, sh- yeah, I'm shaking my head. Yeah, I'm shaking yeah. my head listening to that. You know, when you can just imagine that little golden circle of people who will personally make money out of it, but the, yes. the citizens of yeah. the city themselves won't. But what about revenues then? Surely when you've got, um, even for television rights and ticket sales and advertising, you know, all those revenue streams, where does that go? Well, the, the the largest revenue stream is from the international television contracts. And, of course, the one from NBC in the United States is the largest. But there's also CBC in Canada, and there's also networks around the world that, that pay the IOC money for the right to broadcast the Olympics. The IOC these days shares about 25% of that revenue with the host city. And, uh-huh. and the IOC keeps the remainder for itself. The IOC then distributes a good portion of that to the international sports federations and to the national Olympic committees. But the host city only gets 25% of that. The host city only gets 50% of international sponsorship money. Uh, The host city gets to keep its ticketing revenue. In the case of Brazil, that's about $300 million. When you add up all of the media revenue and the sponsorship revenue and the ticket revenue that, that Rio will get, it's somewhere on the order of $3 billion. Again, that that doesn't hold a candle up against $20 billion of costs. Now, the two great exceptions, apparently, to this were Los Angeles in 84 and Barcelona in 1992. And it's said that they actually managed to turn a profit from it. What did they do differently? Well, Barcelona didn't turn a, a, a profit in cash flow. What Barcelona did was to take a city that was underappreciated as a tourist venue um, and uh, and 
to take advantage of its 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 natural its natural situation, which is that they have a wonderful climate, they have beautiful location, they have gorgeous architecture and, and rich rich culture and history, uh, but it was underappreciated, and they were able to take advantage of the exposure that they got from the Olympic Games. But the reason why it worked in Barcelona was because they planned it all out beforehand. Uh, they, after Franco passed away in 1975 and they introduced democracy in the country, they planned a restructuring of the city based upon a new vision that would remove a warehousing and manufacturing district that was on the sea, remove it to someplace else, and open the city to the sea. And along with that, there was some trans- transportation route reconfiguration. And there was a plan in place for the city prior to the decision to go ahead and bid for the games. So when they decided to bid for the games, they fit the games, the IOC's requirements, into the plan that they already made. If if you use your investments for the Olympics to promote an, an existing plan, then it can work out. But the typical sequence is that there is no new vision, there is no plan for the city, there's simply an accommodation and a contortion of the city in order to accommodate the IOC's many demands. So that's primarily, there's some other things going on in Barcelona that were supportive also, but that's primarily what happened there. <clears throat> With Los Angeles, what happened in, in uh, 1984 is that nobody wanted to bid to host the Olympics because the, the previous three Summer Olympics in Mexico City, Munich, and, and, and Montreal had all been disastrous in their own ways. Nobody wanted to bid. Los Angeles stepped forward and said, we'll bid, but we have certain conditions. And the IOC, because they couldn't put Los Angeles up against some other bidder, uh, the IOC had to go along with Los Angeles conditions, which were number one. And this is the only time this has happened. Los Angeles said to the IOC, we're, we refuse to financially backstop the game. So we're not going to cover any losses that we might experience. The IOC had no choice, and they said, okay, you don't have to financially backstop the games. Second thing they said is we want to use the dormitories at UCLA and USC two universities in Los Angeles. We want to use the student dormitories for the Olympic Village. We don't want to build an Olympic Village. IOC said okay. And the third thing they said is we want to be able to use the Olympic Stadium from 1932, uh, which is called the Los Angeles Coliseum. Uh, we want to use that for our Olympic Stadium. We, want, we don't want to build a new one. And, and the, the IOC once again said okay. So Los Angeles, w- with those conditions and with the fact that this is a large urban, it's the second largest city in the United States, they already had a bunch of stadiums for their collegiate and their and their professional sports teams. They hardly had to build anything. So when you're in that situation, and you have the unique uh, the unique condition that they're not going to finance any losses, they were able to actually turn a very small surplus or a modest surplus of two hundred and fifteen million dollars. Uh, so if you have a situation where the city is developed and it has not only the venues already in place, but it has the transportation, the communications, the hospitality, and the sanitation infrastructure already in place, and they, therefore they have to spend very little, in that circumstance it's possible to pull off the Olympics in a financially reasonable way. And that's what happened in Los Angeles. Since the Olympics really started up again in the late 19th century, people have been arguing that it should just stay in one place. And the obvious place is Greece. Um, Can you tell me about the arguments in favor of that? Yeah, well, first of all, I think it makes a lot of sense to put it in one place. Um, When when the modern Olympics began in 1896, we, we didn't have international telecommunications the way we have it now. You couldn't, you couldn't sit in your bedroom in, in, in Leeds 
or sit in your bedroom in Dublin and, and, and watch the games that were happening in Rio. Uh, so you, you wanted to move the Olympics around to enable people around the world to experience the Olympics. They don't have to move them around to experience it anymore. Um, so it, it makes the most sense to, to pick out one venue, maybe one or two or three venues, like Los Angeles, which already has all of the, the, the sports venues and already has all of the, the, the basic infrastructure so that they don't have to waste billions of dollars to do it. And you don't have to rebuild the, the whole Olympic Shangri-La every four years, which is not only financially wasteful, it's a waste, it's a waste of, of the environment and materials. Um, so, yeah, I think it, it's quite sensible to think about doing it in one place. It wouldn't be particularly beneficial to that city uh, because th- there's, there's really no profit to be earned. And, and in fact, the operational costs are, are pretty high these days. It, it, the security cost is over $2 billion. Uh, so there's no great benefit to, to the city that hosts. Uh, and it wouldn't be, if, if, it were, you know, if it were Los Angeles, this wouldn't be uh, U.S. or American chauvinism that was promoting it. It would simply be, from the standpoint of the world economy, it makes the most sense to do it there. Now, I don't, I don't particularly favor Greece. Greece would be, or Athens would be nice symbolically. And Christine Lagarde of the IMF likes the idea because she thinks that it would maybe relieve some of the financial burden on, on Athens and Greece. But I don't think it would. Greece does not have a professional sports infrastructure and a collegiate sports infrastructure that makes them have these venues. They would have to build the venues. The venues from 2004 have virtually all gone to seed. They'd have to build the venues. It would cost billions of dollars. Greece doesn't have the money for that. And once the venues were built, they don't have the domestic sports infrastructure to support those venues. The venues would go unused for the four years in between the Olympic events, which are 17 days every four years. But that idea Uh, in principle of having it in one place, you know, if so many people are in favour of that... Who's against it? I presume the International well, the Olympic Committee. Against it. The IOC laughs at people when, when they suggest it. But, um, <laughs> you know, the, the IOC, the people who are running the IOC are in a situation where they have an enormous amount of power. And why would they give that up? A lot of that power comes from the fact that they get world cities to compete against each other. It doesn't make any sense. Um, so it, it, the real trick here is no matter how good the idea is, as long as the IOC has the power and nobody can regulate the IOC, we're not going to get anything done unless the cities of the world continue to do what they're doing and saying, gee, we're not interested. This is a bad economic bargain. We're not interested in playing your game. Or the corporate sponsors get together and they say, the reason why we put out hundreds of millions of dollars as corporate sponsors uh, every four years is because we think it helps our brand. It, it, it's because we associate with the Olympics, and the Olympics used to have a good name. But if the Olympics has a bad name, if the IOC ruins its reputation, then the corporations don't benefit anymore. So if the, those corporations come together and they say to the IOC, look, this isn't working anymore, either clean up your act or we're not going to sponsor you, that would be another route to to changing all this. But it takes more than a good idea to bring about effective political and economic change. It sure does. I was reading um, when that 1896 Olympics was closing, King George of Greece was pleading that uh, the Olympics remain in Greece. But Pierre de Coubertin, the French intellectual who started the Olympic movement, he said he pretended not to understand the king. And uh, a wag suggested the IOC continues to play dumb and pretend not to understand (laughs) what's really going on. um, Yeah, so here we are, 120 years years later and we're no more enlightened. And that was Andrew Zimbalist, economist and author of Circus Maximus, the economic gamble behind hosting the Olympic Games and World Cup.